You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. You're listening to Amphibicast. I'm your host, Andrew Bates, and this week I have another return guest. I have someone who I haven't spoken to in two years. Uh, you may remember him from, I believe it was episode 16, actually, all the way back in October of 2020. And I'm talking about Josh Allen, uh, also known as Muddy Boots Peru on Instagram. Josh and I had a little bit of time to catch up, and uh, I really wanted to get him back on the show to talk about what's happened since we spoke last and just some of the updates and some of the things that he's working on now in Peru. But uh, of course, before we get into that, of course, the usual stuff. Thanks everyone for the nice reviews. Apple Podcasts and Spotify, it goes a long way, helps the show get out there to a wider audience. And uh, for everything else, if you want to support the show, there's a couple of different options. You can become a patron on Patreon. I have a few different tiers there. $5 tier, get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And you'll also find links through the link tree that I have in the show description for the merch shop, uh, as well as links to support Panamanian frog conservation and a 10% discount off of in-situ ecosystems just by being a listener. So if you want to support the show, you want to get some cool stuff, check out those links. And uh, other than that, I'm, I'm ready to get into it tonight. Josh, uh, you with me? How are you doing tonight? Hey, Dan. Yeah, I'm with you. Doing pretty well. How are you doing? Yeah, it's fantastic to have you back. And it's, you know, it's amazing. Like the connection, like the audio quality from Peru is is like incredible because I've, I've had guests that are in the U.S. that are like one state away and their audio quality isn't that great. And I have you all the way from Peru and it's like it's perfect. So I'm I'm really I'm really happy that we've got a good connection. Wow, that's that's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. So the last time we spoke uh, almost, yeah, almost two years. Actually, it was more than two years ago. Uh, we talked about a lot of what was going on in Peru and some of your unique observations in terms of just being a presence in the area, seeing wild frogs, seeing wild ranitomea, running tours into the, you know, into the wild and the effects that industry and, and farming and agriculture. And now, now a new element that we haven't talked about before is mining. But um, why don't you catch us up on what you've been up to in the past two years so we can um, kind of get everybody uh, on the same page. What, what have you been up to since we talked last? Yeah, so what have I been up to since we talked last? Well, uh, I guess I was in quarantine. I was uh, sick with COVID a couple times, and uh, we went about two years here in Peru without really being able to do much anything. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I've, I've only been able to really do a few trips, um, since the pandemic started. I, I did get to go to a really interesting region of Peru that's right next to the Bolivia border. Um, it's a region, uh, that has a lot of influence from the Bolivian Amazon and the Bolivian cloud forest and whatnot. It's like this, this completely different, interesting ecosystem. And it's around an area that's called Sandia. Uh, it's the only place in Peru where you can find rattlesnakes. And I've seen a couple of rattlesnakes there now, which is really cool. Um, a lot of uh, really super rare lilies in this genus Hippiastrum. Um, and, and a lot of just strange stuff that makes it just barely makes it into Peru from Bolivia. So I got to go there a couple times. Uh, let's see. I did get to take a couple trips up to Terrapoto. And I also ended up getting involved with an NGO out of Germany called Plant for Future. And 
they, they're recently new on the scene. They've only been around for like a few years, but they're, they're moving forward really fast. They're, they're a group of guys that are super, super passionate. And they actually were recommended to me uh, from a guy that works with another NGO. And they contacted me and we, we got along really, really well. So uh, we're both passionate about the very same things and conservation is very important to us. And so they actually ended up planning a trip to come down to Peru to film a documentary and they hired me to take them as a guide and to help them uh, find frogs and other things, other animals and whatnot. They came down. We ended up having a really, really good trip. And we all hit it off real well. And so they actually asked me to join the NGO. And uh, so that's kind of been my focus as of late, just really, really heavily focused on uh, conservation efforts and helping this NGO move forward in Peru. What's it like being a guide? You know, when you have people from outside the country or from urban areas or people who aren't familiar with the environment, like what's, because it's one of those things where people think about being a, a guide and taking people out into nature is this, this, this incredible job. But I mean, what's that like? What is it like to be a guide for ecotourism? So, being a guide for ecotours is really, it's really amazing. I love it. Um, I'm basically doing what I would do anyways, but I've managed to like, quote unquote, make a career out of it, you know? And, uh, you know, I've, I've been to these places where I take clients many times. Most of them I've been to many times. I've seen these animals many, many times. So, I don't have the same reaction as I did when I first saw, for example, you know, the, the, the poison frogs. I don't have that same reaction anymore. I still love seeing them. It never gets old, but it's just not like it was the first time. And I'm sure, you know, most people can relate to that. But what really excites me now is when I take my clients to see those same animals or those same places, and I see their excitement for seeing it for the first time. And I just, I totally live off that. I love it. It's just sharing something that I'm so passionate about with others and seeing them get excited is what drives me to continue doing this. It must be really incredible. Yeah, it, it's really incredible. So when I, when I take people to the jungle for the first time and, you know, they've never been there or they've only had very few experiences in the jungle it's something very new for them, you know? So we get to an amazing spot and I'll explain to the group, you know, okay, we're going to, we're going to come into this spot and we can find whatever species there are these cool plants, whatever, whatever other species. And, uh, when we get into the forest, stick together, you know, we're a group, we have to stick together. So no one gets lost. If anyone, if anything happens to anyone, we can help the others. And mainly just so we don't get lost, you know? And they're like, okay, okay. Okay, we all agree on that. And then, like, as soon as we get into the forest, they're like children in a toy store. They just they just disappear. So I have to go around and I have to like collect the group back sometimes and and bring order to everything. And then we and then we make our way through the forest. And it's always a good time. It's it's always a great time. I can remember one time where I I brought a um, a group from the United States to some forests around Iquitos to go see some frogs up there. And uh, before leaving the actual city of Iquitos, we took a, just a quick tour around 
this giant market called Berlin. And I, I explained everyone the same thing. So when we get into the market, stick together as a group because you could get robbed. Otherwise, don't split up. And it was the same thing. Okay, we won't split up and all that kind of stuff. We'll stick together as a group. But like literally, as soon as we got into the market, they just all started wandering off, looking at everything, and just like like children, basically. And unfortunately, two of them ended up getting robbed. And uh, you know, is it like I I explain these things to my clients like general rules for a reason, just to keep you safe and to keep your stuff safe. Um, other than that, you know, like it's, it's always a good time. I've, I've really never had any bad clients. Uh, it's, it's really a, a pleasure to share this experience with people. How much of a draw is the frogs? Like, do, do you get a lot of people that come down there just specifically looking to see wild poison frogs? Actually, most of my clients have been to see poison frogs, specifically poison frogs. Um, I've, I've had a few clients come down to see tarantulas and a few others come down to see, you know, just in general, whatever, some glass frogs and snakes and things like that as well. Uh, but I would say like 90% of my clients come down to see poison frogs specifically. I'd love to see both the tarantulas and the poison frogs. Cause I remember you and I were talking like two years ago, you showed me some pictures of some really, really amazing native tarantulas. And, um, I mean, have you, we could talk about that for a couple of minutes before we get into the, the meat of tonight's discussion, but have you seen any like really, really interesting tarantula species or like what, what have some of those encounters been like? Well, there, there's always interesting tarantulas to see in Peru and there's always new species to be discovered. There's so many species here. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, especially in the highlands and the Andes. Uh, where you get around like 3,000 to 4,000 meters in elevation. I don't know how much that is, like 10,000 to 12,000 feet or something like that. Every mountaintop or every valley can have a different species of tarantula, and a lot of them are new. And uh, in the last few years, there have been some biologists here in Peru that have been working really hard on tarantula taxonomy, and they've discovered a lot of really nice stuff. Uh, one, one guy I know, he's a friend of mine, discovered a tarantula here it's in the genus bistriopelma that actually has a horn on the on the top of the carapace it's really interesting yeah that's wild i've heard of that in some of the old world tarantulas the um oh i'm trying to think of the i'm trying to think of the, the, the scientific name um th there's a couple of tarantulas in the gyrus, isn't it? um oh I, what is it I think it's I think it's I think it's Ceratogyrus, but I if my tarantula people I'm sure will correct me. Um, yeah, I mean everyone has their way of pronouncing the scientific names, but you know as long as uh, people can understand. What yeah, you're about. it's it's this it's this I think it's Ceratogyrus or Ceratogyrus, whoever anyone pronounces it. Yeah, that 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 genera yeah. or that yeah. genus rather. That's wild. Yeah, I don't even know if anybody's even seen like something like that in uh, in a New World tarantula. Well, there is one species from, it's either from Central America or South America. It's something or other, Hoffman, I can't remember, that does have a horn. Um, but it, as far as I know, it was the only species in, in all of the New World that, that has a horn up until now. We now have this Bistriopelma from Peru that has a, a pretty decent-sized horn on, on the carapace. 
That's amazing. That's amazing. I, I could I could go on for hours about the tarantula angle, but like it'll it'll take up the whole show. But um, <laughs> I, I we were talking off air about what the situation is in Peru with habitat degradation due to th- like farming and and agriculture and and gold mining too, which is which is kind of a a, a newer phenomenon down there. And I, I want to walk through all that because I, I mean I personally place a tremendous amount of value on where these things come from. Because obviously, even though the show is about frogs, I, I like to keep it a pretty holistic approach. And I think it's very important that we appreciate wild frogs in addition to captive frogs, because, I mean, number one, you know, they're, they're wild frogs. They're deserving of, of admiration and, you know, and, and respect, I guess you could say that. But I feel like if we were keeping these things in captivity, we really need to do have some sort of an understanding in terms of what's happening to them in the wild, because, there could very easily come a point where there's none around anymore. And you actually made, you made quite an interesting discovery with the, one of the Ranatomea species. We'll get into that as well, because that was also really, really interesting to me. But um, I want to talk about an area that was completely lost, an area of extreme biodiversity that you had some experience with. And we'll kind of get into some of the areas that you've been exploring now and what the future is. But uh, tell us about Kilometer 7. What, what is Kilometer 7? What went on there? And then what was the, the end game for it, where it, was, it just became completely not there anymore? Yeah, so Kilometer 7 was a very biodiverse-rich hotspot, um, very close to a town called Pong de Kainarachi which is famous for dart frogs. Uh, Now this forest, Kilometer 7, used to be one of the, you know, main forests that many, many, many biologists have gone and done their studies for many years. And uh, based on all these these studies, they they had come to the conclusion that this forest is very special. It's a biodiversity hotspot. And... Uh, the whole, the whole uh, big giant study and revision that Evan Twomey and Jason Brown did on Randy Tamea of Peru, a lot of that work was done in Kilometer 7. So now Kilometer 7 was, um, uh, well, I think it was the, the original forest of the Ranitamea fantastic at lowland morph it was the it was the like type locality for for that lowland fantastica morph as as far as i know i understand it like that but um the uh the the population of these fantastica that were there were was was pretty healthy and not only did you find fantastica there but you also found the lowland a morph of Renitamea variabilis, the lowland morph of Renitamea imitator, and then a, a couple different Amiregus species there. And there was a nice population also of Hyloxylus azuriventris there. So, I mean, it was easy to access. It was close to Terrapoda where all the biologists stayed. And it was so full of diversity that you could go there and, you know, see whatever it is that you wanted to see there and, and, and complete your studies there with no problems. And, uh, the forest had been there in good shape for so many years. And then somewhere during the pandemic, the owner of the land had gone into debt with the banks and he needed to make money. So 
he started cutting the forest. And when we got wind of this, or when we were we were told about this deforestation going on, um, some of my friends in Terrapoto actually went to the authorities and and reported the authorities, and they went out to the actual site of Kilometer Seven and put a stop to it. And so the the owner of the forest, along with um, Marco Leon, who was the president of Inibico, the NGO Inibico in Terrapoto, as well as Matthew Chuto, myself, and the head of whatever um, government entity it is over there that that you know protects forest, uh, had a meeting with the owner, and we all came to the conclusion that. First off, in order for him to continue cutting the forest down, he needed to get a permit because he didn't have a permit. So he was actually cutting the forest down illegally. And it was going to take him two years to get a permit. And second, we had come to the conclusion that it was more worth it for the landowner to just sell the land rather than cut the forest down to try and make money to pay the bank back that way. So uh, we had agreed with him that within that two-year period, we were going to get the money to buy his forest. But we were already in another project, which we'll, which we'll talk about later, um, that had already um, seized the, any, any funding that we already have coming in. Um, so that, that was the agreement. We were going to first do this project that we're already doing. And then once that's done, we were going to go do kilometer seven. We we're going to buy it. We were going to save it, you know, and I think just, uh, a couple months went by and I was back in Terrapoto and I was actually with the guys from the NGO. I was with the president of the NGO and one of, one of his, uh, um, one of the other guys that worked for the NGO and, uh, we went to the site of our current project. We spent three days there. And then on our way back to Terrapoto, we stopped at kilometer seven because the president of the NGO wanted to see the condition of the forest and what we could do to save it. And eventually, at some point in time during our trip there, meet the owner and talk with him and come to an agreement. But upon arriving to kilometer seven, it was no more. It was completely destroyed. They, they cut down everything. So once an area has been entirely exterminated, what, what happens next? I mean, now that it's gone, what, what became of it? So it hasn't become anything yet. It's just a graveyard of tree corpses right now. They haven't done anything to it. So what will probably happen is they've, they've gone through and they've cut down all of the trees. There's nothing left, right? And all of the valuable timber, they've, they've, they've cut it up into beams and they've hauled it out to go sell it. And then they'll eventually, most likely they'll eventually end up burning everything. And once it's burned, they'll plant some kind of a crop there and then grow the crop. And then the, the, the owner of that land will get some kind of an income based on that crop. But will it be enough to pay his, his debt with the bank off? Most likely not. So 
Uh, this is a very, very, very common situation in the Amazon, unfortunately. People go into debt or people are, you know, in need of making money to support their families or they need food, whatever. So they go and they just the, – the easiest way to do this is cut down forest, burn it, and then grow a new crop. And once that, that soil is no longer um, fertile, it's no longer usable, which happens in only a couple of years, like two or three years because soil here is notoriously poor – they just move on to the next plot of forest. They cut it down, burn it, and do it all over again. And nobody has taught these people how to recycle their land that they've already cut down. And they they think it's impossible, but it's not impossible. It's completely possible. It's just nobody has brought that that ideology to to Peru or anywhere in third world countries in reality. You know, um, so that's basically what's going to end up happening with this land and. Once, once he's used up the, any nutrients that's in that soil, which only takes two to three years, roughly, he's going to move on to the next plot of forest and just do the same. What does the, I mean, I know it's hard. We were kind of talking about, you know, putting prices on things. I know you have feelings about that, but uh, I mean, if, if, if we were to put a price on a, a quantity of land down there. I mean, is just is land just very very inexpensive down there? Is it pricely? I mean, like let's just say for argument's sake, you know, obviously you and you know your associates you you wanted to purchase this land. I mean, how much of it, like what does it cost to buy land? Because it seems like it's anyone can just go in and just take over and and, and do whatever they want. I mean, is it like what's the land buying process down there? So, um in order to buy land here, uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna talk about buying land here as a foreigner because um, it's it's a different process compared to buying land as as a, a Peruvian or a resident of Peru. So a foreigner, in order to buy land here, they they can buy land, but um, in order to do so, it's kind of a tedious pro- pro- process. So. They have to get permission to be able to, to sign documents in Peru, one. And two, they need to be present in Peru to be able to sign the document. Or they need to be able to pass power of attorney to somebody that's trustworthy in order to sign the document. Um, and if you're doing it as an NGO, like, for example, the NGO that I'm, that I'm working with, that I'm a part of um, – We've signed contracts for three plots of forest that we're that we're gonna save. And in order to do so, the president of the NGO has to has to get all of these legal documents from Germany, um, all about the NGO, who are the members, what what their um, their vision is, what their projects are based on and they have to get all of that stuff apostled and then sent to Peru. And then he has to get permission to legally sign documents in Peru. And then he has to come down to Peru and be present within the country while we're doing all this process. And then he has to be present to be able to sign the documents for the land and everything. And it's just like, it's way too complicated. Now, if you're not doing this for a business or an NGO or something like that, it's a little more simple. Um, but uh, the cost of land here. I would say is relatively cheap compared to the United States, for example, uh, based on where you're looking at buying your land. 
Now, if you're wanting to buy land in, for example, Cusco, which is very close to Machu Picchu or any land that's anywhere close to Machu Picchu, you can expect to pay equivalent prices uh, in dollars. Like you're looking at like $200,000 for a little lot or something like that, or even half a million dollars for a little lot, or even all the way up to a million dollars for a lot. It's ridiculous. Uh, and then there are some areas around Terrapoda, which I mean, it's, it's not really known for much anything <laughs> except for poison frogs and a couple waterfalls, something like that. There are areas around Terrapoda where they're selling plots of land for like half a million dollars. And it's crazy. And it's all because foreigners have come in and they started buying land. So um, people started raising the prices ridiculously. There's another place called um, Gokta Waterfall where land prices have done the same thing. They've skyrocketed to where you'll actually end up paying more for a piece of like just a little plot of land. That's like, you know, it's like a little lot that you would typically find in, in any, any town, you know, which could probably like be like a few thousand square feet, uh, not, not even big. You could pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for that just because of the locality, you know? So prices can be fairly similar to the United States, but where we are looking at buying land to protect and conserve habitat and species, land prices are pretty reasonable, actually. So you can get land anywhere from like $1,000 to $2,000 on up to about five or $6,000 per hectare now a hectare of land is two and a half acres to give you an idea so or or ten thousand square meters that's pretty big so if you want to do a, like a conservation project and you want to buy a hundred hectares of land or even 50 hectares of land to protect this forest you can oftentimes get the the, the price lowered even more per hectare so you can pay you know, around a thousand or even less than a thousand dollars per hectare. And I mean, it's, it's ridiculously cheap sometimes. And, you know, NGOs like the one that I'm, that I'm working for are really, they're super passionate about conservation and making sure that there's not only a future for humans for mankind for our children our children's children but also a future for the animals that call that forest home so we go out in these areas and we look at land prices and stuff and it's like okay well yeah that's affordable but then all of a sudden when you look at look at the price of the the entire plot of land overall you're looking at like two hundred thousand dollars or or sometimes more just for like you know, 13 or 14 square hectares of land. It's like, but well, that's not a lot of land when you really look at it from a conservation standpoint, you know? Okay, so we got this plot of land that's, say, 14, 14 hectares, or 14 hectares, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, 14 hectares, sorry. Um, remember, one hectare is two and a half acres. And you're thinking like, okay, $200,000 or $150,000, I'm like, okay, that's not bad at all. But when you look at the actual scale of those 14 hectares on a conservation 
basis. It's like, that's not much. What are we going to do with that? Nothing. <laughs> it's nothing on a conservation level, you know. So you would have to buy a dozen of those plots or dozens and dozens of those plots in order to really actually be able to uh, validate a conservation effort, you know. So that's what we're in right now. We've we've signed contracts for three pieces of land now, but like the numbers that I just threw out there, you can you can you can imagine the amount of money that uh, we're having to come up with now to be able to pay these pieces of land. And and luckily we've got a really good team in the NGO, and they've got some really amazing connections, and they are moving really quickly, and they were they're getting money. Sometimes it seems like out of thin air. They're doing a really good job. And we've already gotten enough money just in, in a couple months to pay one of those lots off. And now we're working on getting the money to pay the other lots off. But we need help. Like, we can't do it on our own, you know. So we're, we're trying to motivate people to get involved, especially hobbyists. You know, hobbyists are enjoying these frogs in terrariums, in their, in their living rooms, in their basements or whatever all the way up to making like like a living out of so them making businesses out of poison frogs and plants some people are making good money off of this really good money but what are they giving back to the frogs you know we're making so much profit so much advancement all this stuff so much enjoyment off of these animals off of these environments off of these plants we're getting so much from it, but what are we giving back? So we're trying to convince hobbyists to get involved, give back to, to, to nature, give back to the frogs that they love so much, give back to the frogs that have allowed them, uh, many of them, to make a living, you know? It, it'd be interesting to see if there, like, you could get a plot together that was funded 100% by hobbyists. Like if you had a hundred people or 200 people, you know, everybody contributes an evil, an equal, not an evil, an equal amount. And you end up with an area that you can say is completely funded by the dart frog hobby. That would be, I mean, that would be pretty impressive. I don't know if that's something that's realistic, but be interesting. That would be, that would be amazing, Dan. That would be amazing. And that would show that hobbyists are making an effort, you know, and, and, that, and that hobbyists aren't just selfish and only thinking about themselves i hate to put it that way but it's it's kind of true the hobby is very selfish um but imagine the amount of hobbyists that are out there in dart frogs there's thousands in the u.s alone right and oh, if easily, we bring yeah. that to a higher level, not not just not just dart frogs and other frogs and things like that, but if we like we include reptiles and amphibians in general, tarantulas and stuff, there's hundreds of thousands of people involved in these hobbies, even the fish hobby and everything. Like, oh my god. Imagine if all of these people donated just one dollar. That would that would move mountains. One dollar. That's not. Gonna, that's not gonna. That's not gonna cause anyone to go bankrupt. That's not gonna cause anyone to 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 not pay their rent. It's not gonna cause anyone to to skip lunch. You know, it's one dollar. But if everyone would just donate that one dollar, projects like Plant for Future can move mountains. 
Well, while we're on mountains, I, I want to talk about another area that is, from what you've told me, is still a pretty pristine condition. And it's, it's I believe you told me it's an indigenous area. And uh, I, I practiced with you before we started and i'm going to try to pronounce i'm going to try to pronounce the name because it's actually a very beautiful name uh is it, i think it's uh cordillera Serra. that's it or did i butcher it yeah so it's it's pronounced cordillera Sierra. Sierra, sorry la, la cordillera Sierra. yeah so uh yeah i can i can talk to you about the cordillera Sierra all you want man yeah <laughs> because i i know that you you would run into some ranatomea sirensius that were uh hybrids between two different locales in this area and i'm just curious if you could give us an idea a description of what the environment is like you know just just give us like a, a, a as best of a visual as you can in terms of what the landscape is what the environment's like and where you're finding these sirensis yeah so the the cordillera Sierra. Like like I mentioned before, I I have an obsession with this mountain range. It's one of my absolute favorite places I've ever been. It's so magical. I mean, it's right up there with the redwood forests and the sequoia forests in California. It's just it's magical. Um, the, the the energy is just on another level, and it's so full of life. You can feel it. So. Every time I go back to the Cordillera Sierra, uh, the, the Cordillera Sierra, I as soon as I see the mountain range, I just I get full of joy, <laughs> and I just can't stop smiling, you know. Uh, so when you're when you're arriving to the Cordillera Sierra, it's it's very typical, you know. There's a lot of deforestation, a lot of uh, chakras, which are like farms, and um, just a, a lot of habitat destruction in general. But the, 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 the actual Cordillera Sierra is, is a communal reserve, which means it, it, it's basically like uh, indigenous land or like a reservation, I guess you could say. And it's illegal to go in without permission. It's illegal to cut down forest or log any kind of trees. It's illegal to gold mine. It's illegal to poach or hunt, all of that stuff. Unless you're native and part of the community, the, the, the communities that are around the Cordillera Sierra. And you can only do so with permission from, you know, chief of the tribe or, or from CERNAMP, which is the government entity that it's like uh, parks and recreation in the United States, I guess you could say. So, um you you arrive to the Cordillera Sierra after going through all of this, uh, you know, uh, deforested areas full of farmland, and it's like walking into a completely different world. It's like walking back in time, and you find yourself suddenly in some of the most pristine, amazing rainforest I've I've ever seen. And we're talking about lowland rainforest. Um, it's literally like walking into like Jurassic Park or something. I'm not even kidding. So the habitat is fairly dense. The The trees are massive. You, you find very high levels of, of diversity there in plants as well as animals. And the Cordillera Sierra, not really sure why, but it harbors 
a, a lot of endemism, which means species that are found nowhere else. Like you won't even find them in other parts of Peru. Um, and a lot of really super rare endangered species can be found there as well, you know, to where if you go and try and find these species in other places, it's darn near impossible. We can find them there. And, you know, I'd been there a couple, like two or three times before. And, uh, you know, as soon as you get to the border of the reserve, it's like you're literally walking into another world. It's insanely beautiful. But this last time that I went, which was just a few weeks ago with two clients, um, on our way up to the actual reserve where there used to be forest, it was now all gold mines. It was completely devastated, destroyed. And all of the soil was upturned and big giant holes everywhere full of water. And we saw tractors all over the place, these big giant backhoes digging huge holes, contaminating the river. And I was, I was shocked. I was shocked that the, the the natives were allowing this to happen, but at the same time, you got to understand because they they want to have an income as well. Um, but we we follow this road going all the way up to the Cordillera Sierra, and this gold mining followed the road all the way up actually into the reserve. It penetrated the reserve and it went up, and it's still going up, unfortunately, following the river. Um, and for me, it was just it was depressing to see because. Uh, like I mentioned before, that is one of my absolute favorite places on the planet, and I'm seeing it being gutted by gold mining. When you talk about the soil, um, I mean, obviously, I mean, we all kind of know that rainforest soil is typically pretty poor in, in nutrients. You, you had mentioned something to me before about Ranatomea and what some of the, the some of the very very specific habitat needs that you mentioned um you mentioned soil in that as well so obviously soil degradation is going to be having a population on wild frogs but do you want to tell us about the importance of, of soil as it relates to ranatomea as, as you've observed it yeah absolutely i can get into that but if if you like i can actually uh answer your other question about the cordillera sierra about the frogs that are found there and and kind of where they live Sure, absolutely. How they live and whatnot, if you like. Um, yeah, so in the Cordillera Sierra, it's, it's kind of a, a strange place. You have you have Ranitimea sirensis there. Now, everyone knows that Ranitimea sirensis, the, the type species, is this little weird thing that looks like a, like a strawberry dart frog, you know, the Ufago pumilio, like a blue jeans morph or something like that. And it, it, it's completely lacking black except for the eyes. Now that's, that's, the, that's the type specimen. And through the, the work of Evan Tomey and Jason Brown, the revision of Randy Tamea, they went up there, spent a lot of time looking for this nominal frog and, or the, the original Sirensis. And um, all they ever found were these um, Lamasi, what were, at the time called Ranitomea Lamasi. And they started ignoring all the calls of these Lamasi frogs. And they just focused on um, trying to figure out what's going on with this Sorensis frog. So they couldn't find any on, on their first two trips they went there that they went and looked for them. And on the third trip, they actually ended up finding them. 
And to their surprise, the the this uh, Renitomea sirensis was inbreeding with Renitomea lamasi. They were actually hybridizing. So they started um, paying attention to all of these lamasi, these Renitomea lamasi calls that they were hearing all over the place. And they started looking for all the frogs calling. And they found out that this Sorensis frog has the same call. And so when they did the DNA work, they were surprised to find out that the DNA, the, the DNA pretty much matched between the two different species. So Ranitomea lamasi actually ended up becoming synonymous of Ranitomea sorensis. So when you get into the Cordillera Sierra, uh, around, around the, the, the lowlands, just at the base of the mountains, you find all yellow frogs. And uh, you don't find orange or red frogs until you actually get to the foothills, up into the foothills of the actual mountains. Yeah, so you have to be kind of at like a certain elevation and a certain, um, like a, a, a certain set of kilometers into the mountains, I guess you could say. Like, uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but you have to literally be like into the foothills to start finding orange and red frogs. Now, we don't really understand why there's, there, there are yellow, only yellow frogs down in the lowlands up to a certain point. And then when you reach a certain elevation and, a, and, a, and like a certain set of um, meters or feet or kilometers or whatever you want to say into the mountains, you suddenly start finding these yellow frogs or the red frogs. I'm sorry. It's, 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 it's a very, very um, abrupt change. You know, like you, you, you find yellow frogs, you cross a river and all of a sudden you find red frogs. It's that, it's that abrupt. It's that drastic of a change, you know, it's not gradual at all. Um, so we're sure we're trying to figure out why that is. And even 12, Evan Twomey is actually doing a, a, a study right now on um, the pigment, the pig, the, the pigments that these red and orange frogs have and what's causing it, whether it is genetic or whether it is all diet based. And, um, you know, what, what the, what the, the, the factor is that is, that is uh, separating these two different populations, the yellow ones with the, the red and orange ones when they're so close. And then when you get further into the mountains, you get further up, you suddenly start finding these nominal frogs, um, which are completely different altogether. And so what, what's causing that, you know, and it just so happens that these areas that, that have been found so far happen to be like, like an integrate zone between different morphs. So you get like this quote unquote hybridization thing going on and you get all these different genetics that are just being mixed around like a soup. So you find the weirdest frogs there sometimes and uh, no one really knows what's going on. So it's an interesting mountain range. There are other frogs there that are that are that are really interesting. Well, as well, like this uh, Amirega panguana, which has a couple different morphs as well. There's this, there's like a very standard morph that has like a copper colored back with these almost gray spots on the back, and then the and then the belly is black and turquoise, mottled with some 
yellow or orange um, flash marks. And there's another population that are like, they have almost completely white bellies and flanks with little like fine pinstripe black markings all over them with these crazy orange flash marks. And then the back is almost like, like a light gray with olive green spots on them. And, you know, like what's causing all of this weird uh, variation in the Cordillera Sierra. When you get further in, you get a bunch of other weird frogs, like these rare glass frogs and rare monkey frogs and all that kind of stuff. They're like, why? It's that that's what fascinates me so much about this mountain range. It's just full of mysteries, basically. So there's all different um I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this. Like there's all different biomes like throughout this mountain range that are like very, very specific to each species. Like that's just the way the biodiversity works or is it kind of similar and the species have just kind of all radiated out into different niches within that? Well, the, the habitat type is pretty much all the same. It's, or, or at least it's very similar. It's very, very similar. Uh, the further in you get into the mountains following the rivers and the creeks, the more humid it becomes, the closer you get to the to the slopes and the high elevations, the more humid it becomes. And the more you start seeing a lot of bromeliads and orchids and a lot more moss. So you have that kind of change. But in general, the forest is very similar. Now, when you get away from the creeks and you climb up some of the big hillsides and stuff, you get on the top, the forests do slightly change there as well. You start getting um, some different species of trees and plants, and it's slightly more dry. But in general, it's still very similar. And you get that same kind of thing all over the Cordillera Sierra, it seems. Now, with the frogs, as, as we all know, these Rennie Tamea frogs uh, rely on plants with phytotelms in, in order to deposit their tadpoles, or they rely on tree holes and stuff. Well, Rennie Tamea sirensis specifically relies on plants with phytotelms, in particular Santhosoma. Um, in disturbed areas and then in in more undisturbed primary forest they it seems like they rely on heliconius and possibly bromeliads there's though there's there's no proof that they um, use bromeliads but there there is proof that they use santhosoma they use heliconius and they use a large species of um, calathea so uh, anywhere in the forest where you can find these host plants, you could potentially find the frogs. And if you go into any forest around there where there aren't host plants, that means that maybe it's not humid enough, um, the soil dries out too much or something like that. And the, and, the, and the plants, it's not preferable habitat to the plants. Therefore, it's not going to be preferable habitat to the frog. Is that what you meant by the, the soil being something that was really important to sustaining a population of, of, of these species around Atomea? No. So um, I'll, I'll get on to that topic now. Um, uh, the soil. Okay. Something that hit the, the hobby really hard several years ago was uh, a big debate on soil and calcium and all of these other nutrients and stuff to try and um stop spindly leg syndrome right you you remember that oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah there were, there were like big debates on this stuff how do we get rid of spindly leg syndrome 
And people tried all kinds of crazy stuff, right? But it turns out that when people stopped using like cocoa peat or peat or all these other mixes and they started adding clay into their terrariums, spindly leg syndrome dropped drastically. And I mean, I don't, I don't even hear about spindly leg syndrome in the hobby anymore, you know, cause well, uh, nutrients for frogs has gotten so much better for one and two, practically everybody uses clay soil. now. So, I mean, that tells you something right there. If, if, if you're having such issues using other types of soil, these organic soils, you're getting problems with the health of your frogs, especially the offspring. And then all of a sudden you change that, 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 that substrate type that you use in your terrarium to mineral-based clay soils. And all of a sudden all of your problems disappear. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you to, <laughs> to, to start using uh, a mineral-based soil. Yeah, I know a lot of people have, have had incorporated and... I mean, I I don't I don't keep Rhinosomea, but I've given my phyllobates and some of my my dendrobates species uh, clay in their enclosure, and they they do seem to gravitate towards it. They do definitely seem to have uh, a preference for getting in there, and they they actually make a huge mess. So they definitely they definitely like it. Yeah, well, well, that tells you that there's some kind of a mineral content in that clay that the frog needs in order to. Uh, metabolically uh develop right oh yeah absolutely and you know someone uh, one of the things that i've been i've been the comparisons that have come up and you know the, the the deeper i get into the topic the more i realize how different some of these different genera are I mean, even some of the different species in terms of behavior and whatnot but uh there's definitely a lot that overlaps and like with with pamilio i know pamilio the the use of clay soil has become pretty popular and uh, the, I've heard a lot of people compare Pamilio to the to birds with their behavior, their maternal behavior, and whatnot. But one of the things that really struck me as as a definite similarity was macaws going to seek out mineral rich soil and consuming it to satisfy their nutritional needs. You know what I mean? I know that that's something that happens uh, in the rainforest as well. Parrots and other birds will gravitate towards the mineral source. So uh, I mean, I'm assuming it would only be natural to assume that frogs do the same thing. Yeah, uh, mammals in the forest also do the same thing. There are there are clay licks. Like when you think of a clay lick, usually think of a clay cliff where parrots go and they eat the clay, right? But there are, there are clay licks in the forest that is just like like it's like a low depression in the forest where water gathers or whatever, or um, where there's exposed clay, and all these mammals come and they eat the clay because they're getting the salts out of the clay and they're getting the minerals out of the clay. Because the Amazon forest in general is very mineral poor and it's very, uh, it has very little salt content. So, the, okay, the, the, the frogs aren't any different. So, when you go into a forest that has, for example, uh, white sand or any other kind of sa very sandy substrate, you'll notice that the, the plant community in that forest is very different. And I mean, you'll find, you'll find a lot of plants that frogs would use to deposit tadpoles or raise, raise their tadpoles, whatever. Um, you'll find beautiful creeks that Amirega and things like that would deposit tadpoles in. Uh, you know, you definitely find ponds where other types of frogs would, you know, lay eggs. 
stuff like that. But when you're in these forests that have a very high sand content to the soil, uh, you don't you don't find frogs. It's just it, poison frogs, non-existent in these types of forests. And other types of frogs that you do find in these forests, they're like, you know, you find the occasional pristamantis, maybe the occasional boana or uh, dendropsophis, things like that. Uh, but poison frogs, nothing. Or you may find like the occasional, occasional poison frog that just happened to hop into this forest, maybe just like a passerby trying to find his place, his way to a, a better forest. But in general, forests with very sandy soil or very mineral poor soil can't harbor poison frog population but when you get into these forests that have very mineral rich clay soils all of a sudden you find very dense poison frog populations now that's that's been my observation with rangitimea and with amirega here in peru i don't know how it is with other poison frogs and other countries like other other um genera of poison frogs but I, I imagine it's probably the same so um in a, a place called Mikaila, peru um or very close to Mikaila, there's a there's a forest that harbors a healthy population of ranitomea a fantastic of the nominal morph and the the original locality that was found what was it like a hundred years ago or something like that uh was lost it was destroyed and people had tried to find a new population for many years and with with no success until um i think it was evan Twomey and another biologist they managed to find a population of this randisamea fantastic anomalomorph morph near michaela peru and it's been the only population that has been able to be found for the last like 20 years or something like that. Now I've gone and spent a lot of time around Mikaela. I've gone and looked in many, many other forests for frogs with no luck. Like literally I couldn't find any, any species of poison frog in all of these forests that I looked in and I couldn't figure out why. Cause they were, pristine forest they looked perfect for poison frogs i even looked just behind the 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 forest where the actual population of these frogs are like the, it's a forest that's literally attached to the same forest and it's just behind and i couldn't find a single frog there nothing and it was perfect forest i couldn't figure out why so when i when i walked into the Mikaila forest to 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 visit the frogs I started paying attention to everything in, 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 in the biotope that they live in. And then I went back into these other forests where there were no frogs and I, spart I started comparing biotopes. And the one thing that really stood out to me was the soil type. So all of the other forests, literally all of the other forests that I checked had sandy soil. And the Makaila forest, where the frogs are found, it's literally just like it's it's not even a hectare forest, or maybe it's maybe it's just a hectare. It's very small. Just in this area, there is a mineral-rich clay soil, and 
you find frogs to where in all these other other forests you don't find a single frog. Now, you, you, I mean, you don't even find Amirega trivitata, which is a ridiculously common frog. You don't find Ranitimae imitator, which is also very common. I mean, if you can't find trivitata in these forests, there's got to be something wrong. And so in, in, in the Mikaela forest where the Fantastic are found, there's lots of trivitata, lots of imitators as well. Um, as well as uh, we found uh, uh, Ventress there. And... Um, do we find any other poison frogs there? No, I don't think we did. I think it was just those species. So uh, I, I, I come to the conclusion that it's got to be the soil type. These sandy soils are very nutrient poor. They're very mineral poor. And then clay soils are very mineral rich. So it makes sense. And when you, when you look at the hobby and all the problems that the hobby has had for so many years, with spindly leg syndrome and all this other stuff. And just doing a simple switch from these organic uh, substrates to a clay substrate, or at least putting a dish in there with clay has solved all of their, uh, you know, health issues of these frogs. And it's, it's solved the spindly leg syndrome. I mean, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta wonder, you know, the same thing would apply to wild frog populations. So that was something that I found really interesting. And I actually, I ended up talking with um, Evan Twomey about it. I talked with Mark Pepper about it, a couple other people. And they they told me that it was really something that never crossed their mind until I mentioned it to them. And they were like, you know what? You're right. And when I talked to Matthew Chuteau about it, who also did a lot of poison frog studies, he was he was – he was another one that said, oh, yeah, you know what? That, that, you know, most poison frog populations are always found around clay soils. So it makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's incre- That's an incredible observation. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because you think uh, we often oversimplify the, the needs and the behaviors of a lot of these species. And there's so much more going on, and especially in these areas of just high biodiversity that – I mean, everything, everything could hang on the balance of something like just, I mean, like soil. I, 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 it's, it, it really, it makes perfect sense because you're right. And there's very little in the way of nutrition mineral wise, <laughs> you know, in the rainforest in general. So that must be a very, very highly, uh, you know, very highly important source of, of nutrition for them, especially for reproduction. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, th- think of it this way, Dan. Uh, I'm going to, again, use the, the Mikaela region as an example. Um, all of that region around Mikaela, from Yuri Maguas all the way down to close to Pongo de Kainarachi, has vast, vast seas of forests that have sandy soils. Most of the forests have sandy soils out in these regions. And you just have these little islands or these pockets of forest with clay. And you never know where they are. You never know when you're going to run into one. You could be walking through the forest. It's all sand and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden you come into this little pocket of clay. And it's just a little island, you know. And there is where you find the frogs. And then once you walk through that forest to the other side, you're back into this sandy substrate. And it could be sandy, sandy soils for kilometers and kilometers and kilometers or miles and miles and miles, right? So in these regions of in like completely um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? I, I forget English so often now. I speak so much Spanish. It's like it's it's uh they're they're habitat types that that aren't conductive for um, poison frog populations. Most of it is that way, you know. So you're not going to find poison frogs in most of these forests. But then you have these little pockets of forests with clay where you do have poison frog populations. Imagine how fragile that is. Oh, that's got to be incredible. Say you have a hundred square miles. And in that hundred square miles, you have maybe, uh, you know, three, three plots of forest, little pockets of forest that is like one pocket is two square miles. Another it's two square miles. Another it's one square mile of forest that have clay that the frogs can use. And that's where the frogs are found. Imagine if people start cutting all this forest and they cut down all this 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 forest that's on the sand soil so they can grow uh, palm oil most people have to grow palm oil and then they and they get into one of these pockets of clay where the frogs are found and they cut that down i mean it it is so easy to cut down two square miles of forest it's really really easy and it happens in the blink of an eye you go and you cut that one down you just eliminated one population of these frogs and they keep going, they move on, they boom, they move into another pocket, boom, they chop that one down. You've extirpated another spe uh, another population and say you only have one population left and it's only found in one square mile of forest. Imagine how, how fragile that is. And in 100 square miles of forest, by the time you get out of that 100 square miles of forest, and you get into a, a completely different 100 square miles of forest, you suddenly get a different morph of the species or you get a different species altogether. That's how fragile this is, you know. Uh, Ranitomea fantastica is not considered endangered. It's just considered vulnerable because it has a, a, a fairly wide distribution and it can be found within a protected reserve, the Cordia Escalera. But what they don't take into consideration is within that entire range of the species, their distribution is very patchy or it's very spotty. So these frogs aren't, aren't um, they're not uh, um, populating the entire forest within their range. They're populating little tiny patches of forest that are found within their entire range. And we take that to another level when we consider morphs of the species. So Fantastica has several morphs, you know, but nobody considers that morph of any value when it comes to conservation. And the IUCN, unfortunately, they only take things down to a species level. They don't take things down to like a morph level, which they should, because <laughs> Rani Tamea, Fantastica nominal morph, is exactly as i explained just a few minutes ago uh very patchy distribution uh they live in these little pockets or these little islands of clay soil in the forest completely surrounded by seas of forest with sandy soil so that that's very fragile and it can be destroyed in the blink of an eye but no one takes that into consideration because well as a species it's got a huge range and it can be found all over the place 
it's not the case. Unfortunately, it's not the case. You know, I don't think anyone's actually done enough work on that kind of thing to really take that into consideration. And it's something that somebody should do because imagine the, the original population of Rantime Fantastica nominal morph was found like over a hundred years ago and it was cut down and they, it was lost and they didn't find another population until a hundred years later. And that population still exists today, but we've gone to many, many different sites trying to find another population of the same exact morph. And we have not been successful. What does that tell you? Well, it's not particularly, uh, it's not, it's definitely not particularly encouraging. That's for sure. Yeah, but you're yeah. you're working with a new project now, all right? And it was it's Plant for Future. Is that the name of it? Yes, Plant Plant for Future Rostock. Um, plantforfuture.org. Um, unfortunately, the website is all in German, but um, there there should be a an English version coming out soon. On their Instagram, they also go by um, Plant for Future Org. There's no dot between Plan for Future and Org. Um, their Facebook is the same. Amazing group of guys. I highly recommend that you guys check them out, give them a follow, give them a like, and support their project. Yeah, do you want to tell us about your involvement in it and what the what the goals are? Absolutely. Um, so, like I like I mentioned before, I met Plant for Future through a recommendation. And they came down and they did a trip with me uh, where we filmed the documentary. And um, that documentary is just about done and they're going to be previewing it or showing it to the world in November. And with this documentary, they're um, planning on getting a lot of funding for the project that we're doing. And um, the project that we're doing is actually the... Michaela project with the Ranitimea Fantastic Anomino Morph. Um, we have actually signed contracts for three pieces of land and we've made down payments for those pieces of land. So um, we're in the process of saving the Ranitimea Fantastic Anomino Morph forest. Well, that's pretty amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm on their Instagram page now, actually. I'm just kind of, I'm kind of looking at it. There's some, there's some pretty amazing this is pretty amazing. Is this you on here? Um, I'm trying I, to. I think they've they've got some. They've got a bunch of my pictures on there. Yeah. That taken of frogs and everything. things. And they, I, I think gotcha. they've got some pictures of me on there with them. I don't. I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the pictures that uh, people have masks on, so I can't quite make out everybody's face. But I mean, some of this. This is this is even even outside of the frogs. I mean, the 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 bird pictures, and I mean, it looks like an incredible. Um, an incredible area. There's a waterfall. This is yeah, Plant for Future Org on Instagram. Yeah, they're uh, they're they're literally motivated more than anyone that I've ever met to move mountains. They're super passionate about conservation. I see that. Yeah, that's 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 encouraging yeah. though. I mean, I've I've. I mean, for everybody listening, I, I you know I talk to a lot of people. I've had a lot of different conversations with people in different countries and different areas of different countries about conservation efforts. And 
uh, as much as it seems like things have kind of gone off the rails and that we're losing a lot, we, we are gaining ground, which is, it's, it's good to hear, especially for people who, you know, obviously in the frog world and, and appreciate that. I mean, obviously it's not nearly as, as good as it could be, but, uh, it is nice to see organizations getting involved in actually buying land for that purpose. I mean, that, that was kind of what I was asking you before was, I was just curious about the logistics of if somebody did want to come in and buy land, whether it was a, you know, a private person or, or an entity, just how, you know, a, a, how much of a process that it was. I mean, from what you told me earlier in the interview, it actually is quite a, it's quite a big deal. So obviously these people are pretty committed to it. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've had to jump through some hoops to make this happen and it hasn't been easy, but, uh, it's happening. So do you think that ecotourism is going to be like the, the way of the future in terms of like being able to, I hate to use the term, I don't want to say exploit, but, um, I guess the way to make basically the way to, um, make natural resources, something that sells, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, instead of people buying, you know, furniture made out of wood harvested from the rainforest, okay, they go down to Peru, they go down to Ecuador, wherever, and they pay money to see the forest rather than pay for the products that come from the forest. Do you think that that's going to be like a, a reasonable thing that's going to happen? Or do you think that it's still going to be like, what's the, what's, what's the, the climate down there in Peru? Like, you think it's getting more towards uh, conservation focused or it's, it's kind of getting away from that? Like, what do you, what do you think? Um, that's a good question. So here in Peru, it's just like anywhere else in the world, you know, money talks and money runs things. So people go out of their way to, to get it, you know, they do whatever they can to get money. And unfortunately there's, there's this mentality here in Peru where everyone wants to live, you know, like the American dream or whatever. And they're willing to destroy everything to get it, unfortunately. So uh, you'd have to change that mentality. But how do you change that mentality? Well, you'd have to change an entire culture. How do you change that entire culture? Uh, well, you can't because the ones that are running that culture are the ones that influence it and, and, and keep it going the way that it is. So uh, the only thing that I think that you can do is um, – you need to get to the children, you know, you need to educate children the importance on conservation, the importance on uh, finding a balance between, you know, conservation and um, consumerism, I guess you could say. Uh, so I don't, I don't think that uh, people should necessarily stop using wood products but they should start paying attention to where their wood comes from and pay attention to how much wood they use, you know, <laughs> wasting wood, throwing it away, just burning it, things like that, you know, recycle wood, use it for another project, things like that. And uh, it's just, it's, it's finding a balance, right? Between conservation and, uh, you know, uh, oh shoot, uh, another, another brain fart. I'm forgetting English. Uh, well, it, it's just, it's, it's finding a balance between conservation and, um, 
you know, uh, ethical practices, you know, agroforestry, for example, is a, is a great example, I think, because you're kind of, you're, you're mixing um, agriculture with uh, forestry projects like, like uh, reforestation, uh, conservation and things like that. So you're trying to find a balance there. And, that, you know, that's what I really think it comes down to if if you're if you're on 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 either extreme i think it's not going to work out you know but if you can if you can just find that balance then i i think we can really make changes in the world because everybody everybody needs things they need to have things they need to be able to make a living they need to have experiences i think more than anything rather than buying a bunch of crap and filling your house with a bunch of crap that you're never going to do anything with or rather than making a bunch of money that you're never going to spend on anything take time to invest in experiences take time to invest in knowledge get out there and 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 travel get to know the world get to know what's going on in the world I mean, most people, they stay at home and they, 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 for example, most people, they're between their job and their home and that's their life, right? They go home after, after work and they're looking at the Amazon rainforest through a glass box or maybe through a, a YouTube video and they find themselves spending all of their hard-earned cash on crap that they just store in their house, right? Or they they spend it all on making more glass boxes, and they fill an entire house full of glass boxes that represent the rainforest when they could be spending that money on experiences, actually getting down to the rainforest, actually immersing themselves in the rainforest, where these animals and plants that they love so much come from, and actually really truly learn about these animals because you're never going to know about them you're never going to learn about them you're not you're not going to be an expert about them nothing until you actually get out where the frogs live for example and you spend time with the frogs where they're supposed to be that's when you can truly become a quote unquote expert <laughs> And that's also when you come to realize that you actually don't know anything, you know? And I, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's what's, that's what's being an expert is all about admitting that you just don't know. Okay. You, you put the eagle aside, you, you, you humble yourself and you immerse yourself in their world. You're no longer in your world. You're in their world. And you see how they live that you see what they go through. You see the, the, the environmental impact that they're facing, the disaster uh, uh, that's called gold mining or illegal logging or whatever, or climate change that these animals are facing. And you would see these populations in decline. Like you're never going to see that unless you get out with the frogs and you spend time with them. I used to be a hobbyist, just like a lot of people, you know, doing the same thing. Until I got out and actually started spending time in their world. And now I see things through such different eyes. I've seen the decline in many populations of many things over my 41 years of life on this planet. 41 years. That's not a lot of time. We shouldn't have declines this insane in 41 years. 
and I know there are a lot of other people that have lived out there a lot longer than I have, and they, if they've been paying attention to what's going on, they've seen even worse declines, you know? I mean, you, you and I are very similar in age, and we've, we've in our lifetimes, we've seen much more basically what I'm saying is we, we lived through a time where there was much greater biodiversity significantly than there is now. So I, I like younger people in their, like their twenties and their thirties and younger than that, they, like you and I lived during the time when there were, there were just more species alive. And we kind of got in around that time where there was like, um, it, it became, it be, we, as a society, as a world, we became aware that it was actually a problem, although it was kind of late for that. I, I I have I, I want to ask you this this question because I've I've kind of noticed a recurring theme throughout this whole you know the whole podcasting that I've I've encountered several times. Have you ever witnessed the, the what you think to be the last of a single species or the last of a locale? Like, have you ever witnessed that? And like, if so, what was that like for you personally? <sighs> so. Let's see here. So there's one example. Um, yeah, so there there are some tarantulas that I've seen that seem to have a pretty limited range. Um, and they're facing, despite being in high Andes mountains where there are no forests. There's just, I mean, it's just like bare, barren land with rocks and stuff. They're still facing the same thing because people come in here and they, they farm on this land to grow things like maca and, uh, oka and all these other, they're, they're like tuberous plants and, um, you know, they, they survive off this stuff, but they're, they're doing the same thing in, the, in these high elevations and it's completely destroying a lot of when you look at it, you think, Oh, well, you know, it looks fine. There's no destruction here, but there is when you actually look at the soil and what's been done to it, it is completely destroyed and there's no more life there anymore. So I've seen that with at least like one or two tarantula populations that could potentially be like that. But the one that, that really comes to mind, um, is, uh, Exedobates mysteriosus. So the type locality, which is El Tupire, is a, a, a very healthy population. And it's just one cliffside, one cliffside that's covered in these huge bromeliads, and the frogs live in these bromeliads. And all of the surrounding area is dry forest and, and almost desert. It's very dry, very hot, very barren. And the frogs are living on this one little cliff in these bromeliads because the bromeliads hold water in the axles all year round. So the frogs can persist there. And there used to be uh, several other populations around there um, on other similar cliff sides and even in trees. They lived in um, these uh, Acmea bromeliads. And most of those forests where there were populations and trees have been cut down or they've been lost. And a lot of the other populations that were known that were on cliff sides had been completely burned because of farming and stuff. They, they set the hillsides on fire to clear it all so they can farm. And, and these fires get out of control and they, they go right up to cliff sides and they completely devastate populations. So now there are only 
a couple populations left of the type um, frog. And now there is, uh, there's another population that's even greater at risk, and it's the only known population of this morph. There's, so there's the, there's the original morph of Mysteriosis, which has, it's a bigger frog, and it has large white spots all over like a chocolate black background. And there, there, there's a couple of populations left, like I mentioned. But there's another morph. It's called the fine-spotted morph. And it's a smaller frog. And the spots are much smaller. And they have many more spots. And the spots tend to have like a slight sky blue hue to them. It's a beautiful frog. And it's found in one location and one location only that is known today. There could be other populations, but they're not known. So there's only one population known. And if that, for, for some reason, catches on fire and it just completely gets destroyed, we lose that frog forever. Until we find another population, but who knows if we find another population. We don't even know if there's another population. Uh, I know that other people have gone and looked, and I've gone and looked at several places that look like they were perfect, perfect habitat for these frogs. I've gone and looked and I haven't found a single frog, nothing. I've looked on several cliff sides that were full of bromeliads that looked just like their, their type habitat, nothing, no frogs. So, I mean, that, that is a really, really good example of your, your, your question right there. It's found in one single location and nowhere else it, it, that brings me back to the the ranitimea fantastic and then you have you have a huge range for the species and there are several morphs found all over the place so it's not considered um, endangered at, at any level it's just considered vulnerable but these different morphs have different statuses and the nominal morph i mean it's it's found in just one little small area, you know, and we haven't been able to find it anywhere else. But there's so much good habitat around there that there could be other little islands of clay around there where there could be hidden populations. Who knows? We we can't be sure, but it it's possible. Now, when we look at the the Exidobates mysteriosus, uh, it has such a special habitat that is so rare there that i mean you could go weeks or months looking for the right conditions the right habitat uh the at the right elevation with the right temperatures everything and not find it you know when you when you look at all these other spots that look like they're perfect but there's just like there's one little factor that's missing so that the frogs aren't there you know the the odds of getting all of all of these different conditions and necessities and whatnot of the frog in order for it to pers persist in a in a in a location are very extremely low. So, mysteriosis is the frog that comes to mind. You know, it would be so easy for that frog to disappear forever because it just it, it it's. Its habitat requirements are so specific and so rare. Yeah, that's that's amazing. But that's a that's a prime example of 
how fragile biodiversity is. I mean, we, we think about areas of high biodiversity as just being these, these rich places. And I mean, each individual on its own is, is incredibly fragile, just regardless of the fact that there's so many living in such a, you know, such an area. I mean, do do you think that, do you think that you'll see these things go extinct in in your lifetime or or our lifetime? I surely hope not, but it's always possible. There's another example. Um, It's actually in the same region of Mysteriosis. There's a a dirt road that goes from a, a city called Bagua Grande up a mountain. And it's all dry forest. And once you get to the very top of the forest, it's it's just like a little cap of cloud forest on the top. It's really interesting seeing how it all changes from desert dry forest habitat to a cloud forest. Really super interesting. But along that route, when you're like like halfway up, up the mountain, there's a cave right on the side of the road. It's a little small cave. And there's a river that runs through that cave. Now, in that river, there is a new species of blind cave catfish that is not found anywhere else in the world. Only in this little tiny subterranean stream. And it is the coolest little catfish. It has on its on its pectoral fins, on the tip of the pectoral fins, it has this really long, thin streamer. <laughs> that's always streaming behind it when it's swimming around on the water. And it's just the the coolest little catfish. And that catfish is another example. You know, that thing could go extinct within our lifetime as well, just like Mysteriosus could, because it's found in only one spot. It's new to science, by the way, as well. Found in only one single uh, spot, like in, in this little subterranean stream, in this one cave. And... They're contaminating water sources like crazy out there. So if contamination levels due to all the, the, the agriculture going on around there reach a high enough level, it'll poison the fish and they all die and we lose that species forever. Yeah, and you have to think about how many species that have been lost that we never even saw. I mean, think about all the different locales of frog out there with different species that were probably really rare to begin with. And we've never, never even, human eyes have probably never even seen them. Wow. I'm sure it's happened many, many, many times. Yeah. Many times. Well, Josh, we're, we're at the end here. Um, I would, I would, I know I could talk to you for hours, but, um, I wanted you to just give the listeners a chance if they wanted to find out more about you or more about some of the projects that you're involved with, how, how would they go about doing that? So uh, you can find me on Instagram, muddy boots, Peru, or you can find me on Facebook, muddy boots, Peru or Josh Allen. Um, and I offer custom eco tours here, mainly uh, reptile and amphibian focused, uh, specializing in poison frogs, but also uh, plant focused tours. I've taken people on orchid tours before as well. Um, but I, I, I really, really encourage people to check out Plant for Future, the NGO that I'm working for now. Uh, because they're they're really doing cool things and are wanting to do even more cool things. And it's not just about buying forest and protecting that forest. You know, you can only do so much if you buy the forest and protect it. Uh, 
quote unquote protected. You have to get people involved to be able to protect these forests because if you don't, they'll just go into your into your forest that you're trying to protect and start cutting it down anyways, and then you'll just have the same problem all over again. So you have to get locals involved. You have to get communities involved. You have to teach them new farming practices, etc. You need to teach them the importance of conservation, and the, all of that takes time and it takes money. And in order to get money, we need support from people that are concerned about these kind of issues or people that just you know want to do some good in their life they want to give back to the frogs that they have gotten so much enjoyment out of for example you know that that's what we really need right now and uh, any anyone that has motivation to to get involved in conservation and especially in in poison dart frog uh, conservation or anything like that. Amazon forest conservation, habitat conservation in general, planting trees and things like that. Get a hold of Plant for Future and see what they're up to, you know. And if if you feel like it's a fit for you, support them. They're a really amazing group of guys. Wise words. Well, listen, everyone. I want to thank Josh for taking the time to to talk to us. And um, you know, it's it's. I feel like the best way to get an idea of what something is really life like is is obviously to get the perspective of someone who's immersed in it. And Josh has the the very unique distinction of being literally the boots on the ground and being able to look at all these species in their natural environments. And you know, I, I hope that you guys out there appreciate this stuff as much as I do because I feel like. You know, as hobbyists and as enthusiasts, it really is important for us to have an involvement in where these animals come from, and an involvement in preserving them as well. So, you know, check out check out yeah, plant. Sure. For, You're absolutely right. Oh yeah, yeah. Check out plant. For, uh, check out plant for future. Follow Josh on Instagram. He's got some ama- amazing photographs on there as well. And, um, you know, like we said, regardless of you know which entity it is, as long as you're doing something to give back. Um, you know, consider it, you know, take a moment, think about what you have and where it came from and, you know, give, take, take a little time, give, give a little something back. I think that that's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. There's, there, there are plenty of good NGOs out there doing good things, you know, especially in habitat conservation. But when people think of conservation, they they always tend to uh, think about, uh, for example, jaguars or river dolphins, whales and polar bears and things like that. But somebody has to look out for the little guys too. You know, we need to, we need, we need to look out for the little little frogs and snakes and little bugs and things that are crawling around out there because they are indicator species of a healthy environment. And if we lose those indicator species, we're already too late. We're already too late. Everything's, everything's gone too far downhill. So uh, one more thing that I wanted to mention, Sure, Uh, we were talking about the Cordillera. Yeah. We were talking about the Cordillera Sierra and how just diverse it is with all of these crazy things going on there. One of the things that I want to do starting this year is expeditions. Uh, Actually, maybe not this year because we're already at the end of the year starting next year. I want to do some expeditions to the Cordillera Sierra. And I want to get into the mountains from various different points 
um, to really see what's going on, especially with these little Ranitomea syrensis. And because supposedly there, there are, there are rumors of some, some other morphs of syrensis, or maybe it's even a different species. Who knows, but they're really insane looking. And they've only been ever, they've only ever been found once. There's like two different morphs that have only ever been found once and they were completely lost. There's only one photo of any of them and it's a complete mystery. So uh, one of the things I want to do are some expeditions up in the mountains to get into the mountains from several different spots and just really explore and really try to figure out what's going on with these, with these frogs. So if there are anyone, if there's, if there's anyone out there that's interested in doing something like this, like a, a legit expedition into a very magical place to see some very magical animals, uh, that's something that I will be doing starting next year. So find me on Instagram or find me on uh, Facebook, send me a message and, you know, talk to me about uh, the possibility of, of going on one of these expeditions with me. Uh, I would love to have anyone that's like-minded, that's very passionate about this kind of stuff, join along. That sounds like the chance of a lifetime. All right, everyone. Again, I want to thank Josh for taking the time to talk to us. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We, we, I'd, I'd love to keep going, but you know, sometimes we are a little bit pressed for time. But um, really interesting discussion. I, I love hearing about stuff in the field, and I know you guys do too. So again, hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, thanks a lot to Josh Allen for coming on. Check it out. If you want to get in on that expedition, definitely reach out to him. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. I will catch up with you again soon.